Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I am your host Carl Zha. Today we have a very special program on the Hong Kong protest. As many of you have known, Hong Kong protests have been going on for a couple months, and today I will be interviewed by Dan Cohen, a independent journalist. And co-producer of the award-winning documentary *Killing Gaza*, he has produced widely distributed video reports and print dispatches from across Israel-Palestine, Latin America, the U.S.-Mexico border, and Washington D.C. For outlets including Mondowise, Electronic Intifada, The Nation, Alternet, The Gray Zone, Middle East Eye, Al Jazeera English. And Vice News. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Cohen three thousand, and also follow me on Twitter at Carl Za. Carl is spelled with a C. Za is my last name, spelled Z like zebra, H like Henry, A like apple. Today, I will talk about the background of the Hong Kong protest, dating all the way back. To Hong Kong's colonial roots, I will also be talking about the enigmatic figure of Jimmy Lai, a Hong Kong media tycoon who had bankrolled 2014 Occupy movement in Hong Kong, A.K.A. the Umbrella Movement, and who is also a big backer of the current protest, as well as his ties. With the U.S. State Department, I will have that and many more. Without further ado, get on with the show. He was like, "Wow, Hong Kong must be like heaven, you know, like right. so." And and so I must go to Hong Kong. So when he was thirteen,、uh, you know, he he <laughs> and his family they they were that big refugee wave that 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 ran into Hong Kong and. And he actually started from the bottom, bottom up. Like he worked in factories and stuff like that.、Right. Um, but and he he made he made his money、um, actually in textile. He he started his own business、uh, called Giordano,、uh, right. which is、um, uh, which is kind of like the like <laughs> how to describe kind of like the. Rip off Italian fashion, kind of like、uh, he started, kind of just basically,、um, you know, like uh, like like kind of ripping off、uh, the Italian fashion, but make made in Hong Kong, right? right. And but 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 he was not、um, like politically. I mean, he wasn't politically active early on because he was he was mostly.、Um, He was he so he was he started out、um, from the factory, rising to a, a level of factory manager, and then he he started、uh, his own own factory garment uh, company um, and, and making the sweater Giordano. But in 1989, the Tiananmen Square protest,、um, he he was very involved. He he became very vocal supporter of.、Um, Of the the student movement, as a lot of people in Hong Kong were at the time, and what he did then, he he, he distributed his、um, Giordano T-shirts with、um, with picture portraits of student leaders, and 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 
and became um you know like handing them out right so so because of that he was uh his business was blacklisted by the chinese government on mainland uh, uh. and that yes so that's when he became very um like very anti china from that point uh. he was forced to um uh, so so from the, the during the Tiananmen Square protest era, he he made acquaintance with Martin Lee, right? And then um, he also he also um, I think he published uh, some some open letter criticizing Li Peng's handling of of uh, of uh, of crackdown, and then all his Giordano business in uh, in mainland China got blacklisted, so he was forced to sell basically sell his share and and then he used the money took that money so Giordano is no longer his business mm -hmm. uh, I was in China in 2000 and I was able to there were like Giordano shops I could I, I, I purchased like sweaters so, so by that time it was not by that time he already quit Giordano and went into the media business and he's uh he's uh like he even said himself it's because of the uh, because of Tiananmen Square, that's why he made the big switch into to media, and and his media is basically specialized in um, criticizing the Chinese government, right? Because he had this uh, he had this double reason again. One is one is you know his his business got blacklisted, <laughs> and and right. two you know, he because he was also sympathized with the with the student protest. So 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 from from that point on. Like the the next media or Apple Daily that he started, um, he started as like, like tabloid, right? Like really just a lot of gossip, entertainment, like about like Hong Kong mm -hmm. uh, stars, entertain like that that kind of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. But but like with uh, within all these um, celebrity gossip, there will be like he was throwing his piece of. Uh, anti-Chinese government piece in there, right? And, and so so that's how Apple Daily got started. And he became like very like, I think he might be even like the top uh, circulation in Hong Kong. And yeah. yeah, and and he expanded to, so he expanded to Taiwan. And right. he's uh, Apple Daily, uh, there's another, there's another uh, publication um, I forgot what's it called, but anyway, so so his his media empire is he's known for his anti-China stance, right? And, and in two thousand fourteen, right, like the during the Hong Kong umbrella movement or the Occupy movement, right. um, he actually I don't know if you heard about this. He there was audio that was leaked. Uh, he basically invited this leader, opposition leader from Taiwan. So Taiwan had its own like Occupy movement um, before twenty fourteen. Like at the time, it was actually against um, uh, uh, it, it was against the corruption of the the, the Taiwanese government. The, it's actually the DPP government, uh, the the Democratic Progressive uh, Party government by. So, so it was led by one of the, um, it was kind of, it was like a political infight within the DPP party itself. And, and, and the original founder, one of the original founder of DPP led a huge grassroots campaign, tried to oust the, 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 um, the DPP president, Chen Shui-bian, in Taiwan. Uh, what Jimmy Lai did 
is he invited that guy to Hong Kong um, to teach them the methods and the lessons they learned in Taiwan, like how to do the Occupy movement. Uh. That audio was leaked in 2014 <laughs> at some point. So like, so Jimmy, like he was a big financial backer of the Occupy move, like the, the so-called right. bro movement in 2014. He bankrolled that stuff. And he right. was, you ask me about, you know, whether uh, what he said to the U.S. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, consulate people like right. we don't know we we can't we can't know for sure because we don't we don't have the leak audio yet right unlike the last time unlike 2014 right. <laughs> so so unless the one of the participants you know recorded it and leaked it we, we don't really know for sure we just know such meeting took place right I mean but but Jimmy Lai has always been pretty tight with you know State's Department <laughs> right. And, Right. Yeah. Yeah. As 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 uh, Martin Lee. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. Is I mean, is the majority or the majority of like, um, you know, the kind of oligarchs of Hong Kong, are they more pro-China? Okay. So this is the thing, right? That they're not necessarily pro-China. They're pro themselves, right? Right. 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 right of course. <laughs> they're pro their self-interest. So what happened in, um, so basically during the British rule, much of the British rule, it was ruled by a colonial governor sent from Britain, right? And, and, and initially the Britain uh, was actually very wary of the indigenous, indigenous Chinese bourgeois that was growing in Hong Kong, right? And then like, in fact, in um, around, the term of the century, like 1902 or 04, I don't remember the exact date. Um, that's when like the local Chinese merchant class started to, uh, you know, gather, accumulate enough wealth to surpass the British in Hong Kong. And the British were kind of alarmed. So like in around the turn of the century, they actually passed this law called the the Victoria Peak Ordinance, uh, Ordinance Act or something like that. And basically, it, it prohibits any Chinese person to purchase property on top of the Victoria Peak. You know, that's the highest uh, real estate in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which has like the entire view of Hong Kong Harbor and everything. Right, Anyways, I went up there. Yeah, yeah. Victoria Peak back in the turn of the century was reserved only for the Europeans uh, <laughs> because at the time... There was a there was a half Chinese uh, merchant uh, uh, Dong, who is actually related to um, Bruce Lee through his mother. But anyway, the Dong, he he, he um, purchased a, a property on top of Victoria Peak, and and uh, well, initially he rented a property on top of the Victoria Peak and wanting to purchase it, and that piece of property just happened to sit on top of the colonial governor's uh, mansion. So, so like his, his, uh, his, the, the property he rented and wanted to buy is just a little bit higher than the, than the uh, colonial government governor's own house on the Victoria Peak. So the, the colonial governor really took offense to that. He's like, who is this like Chinese guy trying to buy a house on top of me? And, and that's the main motivation um, to get the law passed, and and what to make made it worse is Bruce Lee's grandfather, who is a half brother of Ho Dong, uh, you know after he he saw that the 
Roger bought this piece in, in Victoria Peak. He liked it, and and you know, his grandfather on his mother's side was also like one of the wealthiest men in in Hong Kong. So he said, "I'm going to buy a property too." So so like the 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 Hong Kong colonial government had to rush the law uh, in place to prevent. Bruce Lee's grandfather to purchase a property on <laughs> Victoria Peak, Damn. and yeah, so it was it was pretty racist back then, and and but back after um, basically after World War Two, um, you know, like uh, you know after the Japanese occupation and and the British came back, so the the Britain was in a much weaker position, and so they started to co-op the local elite. Um, um, but they, you know, they it was a very gradual process. Um, like in, especially, uh, you know, it happened also. I don't know if you uh, know, there was a 1967 protest in Hong Kong, and it was a huge protest. But that was um, organized by unions who with pro-China sympathies. It was organized by the leftist unions in Hong Kong, a, a big general strike, mm. and 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 that was. Uh, 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 you know, they, they call it the Hong Kong riot, right? And this was a, the British actually had to deploy uh, local royal, uh, the Royal Marines to to suppress the riot. Um, and and then uh, the, what what's funny is like the Hong Kong Free Press, um, which is very active in this uh, in this current protest. Uh, um, you know, they they were like totally the front center pro protest, right? But they actually have uh, actually found a page on their website talking about the 1967 riot. Uh, but they have a totally different tone, right? Like they were they were quoting CIA and they were saying, "Oh yeah, it was it was good that the Hong Kong police, uh, you know, put law and order to um, to to stem the plot by the communist China to take over Hong Kong through these leftist unions, blah blah blah." Right? <laughs> it's like. It's like yeah, it's like to- like they they don't see they these the, this they 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 see these two protests as totally different, right? Anyway, so um, but but back to what we're talking about um in in 1987 and in 1984 uh well around 1982 that's when the Britain start to negotiate with China about status of Hong Kong because. Uh, Hong Kong consists of three parts: the Hong Kong Island, Kwai uh, Long, and Kwai Long Peninsula, and the and the New Territory. So they were uh, because these different territories were acquired at different. Hong Kong Island was acquired immediately after the first Opium War. It was ceded by the Qing Imperial Government to British, uh, like in perpetuity. You know, just mm-hmm. handed that piece of land to. To Britain forever, and then Koi uh, Long um, Peninsula, British got. I believe it's after the Second Opium War, so it's the peninsula just opposite of the Hong Kong Island, and 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 that was also ceded to Britain like forever, right? And but in night, but after the Boxer Rebellion, or maybe just prior. Uh, you, you might, no, it's just prior to Boxer Rebellion. It's after the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894-95. Um, so when when all the imperial powers saw that you know Japan was able to defeat China, so that triggered another scramble for 
div- divvying up China, right? And so, so everybody wanted a piece of China. And right. then British at that time forced the Qing government to sign a treaty to lease a new territory, which is a territory north of Kwailong Peninsula. This is a very large part of Hong Kong land landmass to lease that piece of territory for 99 years. And but that 99 year lease was due to expire in 1997. So that's why the Thatcher mm-hmm. government in 1982 started to negotiate um, with China about the status. What Thatcher wanted is to continue to hold on to Hong Kong, right? <laughs> to renew the lease for another 99 years. And, and, uh, and, Deng Xiaoping basically said no, <laughs> and, then, right. and then Thatcher at the time actually asked the British Defense Department to uh, to draft a plan to see how they could hold on to Hong Kong, and the military brass have to tell her it's like uh, that's impossible, man. <laughs> it's it's not going to happen, and <clears throat> so that's why the Thatcher government was forced back to the negotiation table and. In the end, the, the, in 1984, both sides agreed that Hong Kong in whole, not just new territory, but Koilong Peninsula and Hong Kong Island, everything will be handed over back to China on 1997. Mm-hmm. And, and, but after this handover agreement was signed and announced, so British, that's when British started to have electoral reform in Hong Kong, trying to bring more democracy to the island. They, they've never done it before, <laughs> but when they, um, you know, after 1984, it, it was decided they're going to hand over to China. They said, OK, well, it's time to bring democracy. So they first introduced a, a, a kind of very limited democracy, the basically the same type of a representation Hong Kong have right now they have a they have a different like it's based on um, it's not one person one vote it's based on con- constitution like they they reserve a like a whole vote block for just for the business right for the business elite mm-hmm. and 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 this system basically further co-opted the local elite of Hong Kong to the the British colonial rule um uh, but but you know still that like they they didn't have the local elite at the time didn't have the total dominance on on everything so at the time the another thing about hong kong is that um hong kong's uh hong kong's real estate price is ridiculous um and it's not because hong kong lack of land you know you you look at hong kong you say oh hong kong's so small so many people that must be because the you know, land is scarce but no mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of land in hong kong right especially in the new territories there's a lot of open land mm-hmm. but um hong kong government artificially jack up the real estate price because most of the hong kong government's revenue come from the land sale to developers so mm-hmm. what they do is they restrict uh, the number of land that's opened up for for development uh, each year, and they, you know, they they so to drive up the the, the land price, um, and and this, they're basically in cahoots with a real estate tycoon, right? And 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 at this at this point, all the richest people in Hong Kong, they're all real estate developers, <laughs> and, right. and 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 so this collusion has been going on for a long time. But 
despite that, during the British rule, the Hong Kong government was still building around 20 to 30k um, units of public housing each year to accommodate the to accommodate uh, the young families starting out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's basically subsidizing housing, and um, but after 1997, after the British handover, right? So what, there's a couple of things that happened uh, just before the handover. Also, is uh, uh, the the Chinese government were okay with the with the initial electoral reform in Hong Kong. The understanding was that okay, this uh, reform they carry out in the 80s, um, you know, the the kind of limited democracy that Hong Kong have, the same form of government will continue. It is through the handover and because, you know, under the one one country, two system rule, <clears throat> because the, the, the Chinese government want to ensure stability and continuity of Hong Kong. You didn't want to spook uh, <laughs> a capital flight, especially after 1987 Tiananmen Square protest, because after the crackdown in Tiananmen Square protest, uh, Beijing was isolated dem- diplomatically. There, there were Western sanctions. Um, uh, there were Western economic sanctions, and and Hong Kong became very important as a conduit for 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 China to receive uh, basically overseas investment, and 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 it would like Hong Kong was important. One main reason is for a long time since 1949, since the, the communists established power on mainland, Hong Kong was the only window. For China through outside world, because through much mm-hmm. of uh, early early rule of PRC, there was a Western blockade on on China, right? And and right. the only only so the only portal <clears throat> that that China could uh, you know get um, interact with outside was through Hong Kong. That's one of the reason um, PRC never. Even though they could totally easily pull like what India did in Goa, take the troops in and take over. Mm-hmm. One of the main reason China didn't do that because as as a British colony, Hong Kong was China's window to the outside world to that period of time. And and also in the 1980s, when China finally started to the reform and opening, Hong Kong was a major uh again was a major uh door through which like a lot of the because the, the initial investment coming to china was through the overseas chinese community in in southeast asia right and and a lot of that money came through hong kong right so hong kong was like a door where the investment into china was funneled so hong kong was very important and um you know keep in mind in 1993 right hong kong's share of GDP <clears throat> as overall China was at 27%. Like Hong Kong GDP in 1993 was 27% of entire China. So so Hong Kong was super important back then. And and right after 1889 Tiananmen Square, uh, there was a lot of uh, you know anxiety in Hong Kong about about the handover and what's going to happen afterwards. So Beijing promised that they're going to be hands off. They're going to keep the British system exactly as it is. 
in place, right? Including its legislature or whatever. But in 1994, the la when the last colonial governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, come to Hong Kong, he decided, um, I think he did it just to spite China. <laughs> he decided he's going to uh, do further electoral reform, like to, to expand the um, electoral ba base, right? I mean, which, you know, you can't really argue against universal suffrage, but he did it with a specific purpose to <laughs> spite Hong Kong, spite, spite China, right? Uh -huh. Like, this was also like after um, 89, after uh, the Tiananmen Square. This is 1994, 1993, 1994. You have to, like, the environment back then was what? The, the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? The collapse of right. communist rule in, 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 in Eastern Europe. So at the time, you know, there are people like uh, Gordon Chan, you know, peddling, uh, you know, common collapse of China, right? Everybody say, oh, well, China is going to be the next domino to fall, right? So, right. so at, at that point, you know, Chris Patton's he decided, you know what, I'm, I'm the last colonial governor of Hong Kong. I'm going to make a name for myself by because uh, this was literally just three years from the handover. He said, I'm going to make a name for myself by giving Ch Hong Kong democracy now. Right. So he, he expanded the electoral reform. And that triggered Beijing because Beijing said, well, that was not part of the agreement. The initial agreement was, you know, Beijing was fine with the, 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 the leaving all the structure, everything in place, what you had before, before 1990s, right? But suddenly now you're changing the rule on us. So Beijing was really against it. And, and that was when like the big, became the big split became between Beijing and the so-called pan-democratic camp in Hong Kong. It was a 1994 um, um, uh, uh, electoral reform. Well, part of that background is also the, the, the unease uh, people in Hong Kong felt after the camp, aftermath of Tiananmen Square, right? So that there's kind of carry on effect. Um, that, um, in 1997, the legislature that was elected in 1995, two years prior to uh, handover, was was dismissed, right? So the, the, the Beijing uh, other election in 1998, according to the pre-1994 uh, electoral reform rule, there, there's a couple of reasons China did that. One is assure the Hong Kong business elite that, uh, you know, they're not going to bring on full on communism to Hong Kong as they feared, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Assure them to make sure there's no capital flight because at that time in 1990, in the 1990s, Hong Kong was still a very important source of capital for for investment into China, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it was, it's also around that time, just beforehand over, that's when a lot of Hong Kong middle class, uh, upper middle class uh, bourgeois people, they, they went over to Canada, you know, buying real estate poverty in Vancouver uh, so they can get like a Canadian passport, a Canadian residence permit, right? And then they, because they, just in case, just in case, because they don't mm. know what's happened. A lot of them actually eventually went back to Hong Kong to work, but have their families stay in Canada, you know, like their kids growing up there. So that's mm -hmm. when the big Hong Kong migration to Canada started. China had at the time had to kind of fight against this, uh, perception of, of it's going to impose 
direct control into Hong Kong. So it agreed to leave all the British colonial era structure in place. But that, that structure is very heavily biased toward the Hong Kong oligarchy, right? Like as we talk about, especially a lot of the real estate tycoons, they control, they have a big say on, uh, in the Hong Kong legislature. And that is the end of the preview for the Hong Kong protest background. The full one hour and a half interview has been released to my Patreon subscribers. To subscribe, search in Google the Silk and Steel podcast. The Patreon link should be the second one from the top. Or you can go to patreon.com in the search box, type in Silk. The Silk and Steel podcast should be the first one in the result. I put in a lot of time and effort to put together this podcast, and I do ask you for your support. For $5 a month, you will receive premium patron-only episodes like this that details culture, politics, history of China, its surrounding region, and China's relationship with the world. You will also receive pre-released regular episodes before they have been released to the general public, as well as newsletters detailing everything China related topics. I hope you enjoy the show and I hope you subscribe. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Oh, you.